room, you can't move, you can't speak. It's, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. You know, you're looking out into the darkness and then you see a figure, but it's darker than the darkness. I just get this like really creepy feeling and I see this, uh, this like shadowy demon looking figure in the front seat of the car. She used to come into my room at night and stand right by my bed and I just was petrified. I remember I saw something fly by my bedroom window. We heard the bathroom door shut. So then we looked out my bedroom window down the hallway and the bathroom door was wide open. So we came around the bend and we saw eye shine. This thing stood up. I mean, it stood up. And it had high pointed ears. It had a snout, it had a long arm, and it just, it grabbed the deer. Okay, guys, I am very excited to welcome our next guest to Let's Get Freaky. We are heading down under tonight, guys. We have got George of us. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Tommy. It's a lovely time to chat. A lot better than 5 a.m. and I normally talk to England. <laughs> so what's the time where you are right now? 8.17 a.m. Wow. It's it's just about to go 20 past 11 here at night. That's mad. past your bedtime. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you know what? This is quite an early one for me as well, to be honest, because I'm normally interviewing America at two, three o'clock in the morning. So this is quite yeah. a nice time. This is quite early for me. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so how are you? All good? I'm excellent. Fighting fit for an old fella. Yeah, man. Looking good for sure. And for, hey, for the, list, for the listeners that can't see, you have got a really cool setup. You are in your own library which is absolutely awesome there's nine foot bookcases floor to ceiling all around me yeah man lovely okay when i try and find something it's a good chance i will even if i do manage to i mean it just continues going on and on and on and on and on and it That's goes a the lot of there. books yeah it used to be bigger we moved to a villa I had a two-story library then. Okay, wow. Yeah. How many, how many of those books are yours? You've got a lot of books yourself, haven't you, sir? Uh, middle grade bookcase. You've got a series of red books, the, book, the shelves above it, and the shelf below it, most of the shelf there. The series of red books, uh, a series of books I wrote earlier this year, 7,000 pages, 22 volumes. Wow. On the history of phenomena from 1600 to 1999 in chronological order. Wow, man, that's that, that's a lot of pages. <laughs> yeah, I think how many people get to write a, an encyclopedia in their lifetime, and then I thought, hang on, not many people get to write a book in a lifetime, and yeah. I've already published. I think it's over 110, but I'm not sure. I'm working on another 50 at the moment. Wow, that is impressive, man. I thought I'd give every state in the North America its own little booklet. Some will be booklets of 10 or 20 pages. Others are several hundred pages. They're all going to get their own Bigfoot book. Yeah, that's awesome, man. But people are parochial. They want to know what's happening in their village, what's happening in their town. And Bigfoot's a big subject. Yeah, man, for sure. A lot of subjects of 
I've got books on cosmology, meteor impacts, my definite my version of the death of the dinosaurs where it wasn't one piddly little four hundred and fifty what was it? Four hundred and no, sixty kilometer wide crater, Shishlum, in Yucatan. And everyone disregards the 450-kilometre-wide Cuba crater next to it from the same period and the Shiva crater in the Indian Ocean, which is even bigger. They form a teardrop as they land. I devised the term teardrop, oh, years ago, where you see the first impact, which is large, the secondary impacts are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, Polidotchishalub is one of the small ones. The others are monsters as they graduate down. Yeah. But I'm not an accredited scientist. I just do research based on data, and I discover patterns no one else ever sees. It's one advantage of 205 IQ. Mind you, it's useless. I still can't open screen doors. That, that's just the way I am. <laughs> Man, it's, it's, it's super interesting. It's fascinating stuff. How did, you, how did you first start getting into these subjects and collecting this data? Oh, it's an old story. Uh, I was born in 1955 in a little remote village in New South Wales in Australia called North Wagga. It was across a river and on the river, river flats across from a bigger village or city called Wagga Wagga, which means place of many crows or in one version, place of many stumbling and falling drunks. It suited both. Didn't see that many any crows, but I did see a lot of stumbling and falling drunks. And we lived in an old weatherboard homestead for Big Grand on the front and the rest of it. It's almost southern, or southern North America. But it was a good little property. We raised hogs, pigs to English, or swine, depending on whether you like them or not. I don't mind them on a plate in front of me. And I had a severe... I'd been run over by a Volkswagen when I was one the quarter and was crippled and supposed to be a vegetable and supposed to be relatively non-mobile. So my parents bought me a bought me the Encyclopedia Britannica when I was about four to have something to do and something to read, which I read. Then I started finding then I found out, yes, I found out that the High Dam of Aswan was going to be built in Egypt. And I'm not sure of how much of your knowledge encompasses the high dam, the S1 high dam. I was horrified. I don't know if it triggered something from a past life or what. My family said I just sat wailing and donging at the piano about Abyssinbel being flooded. That's not a, it's a strange thing for a kid who's about seven or eight. But, you know, that my love for Egyptology was such that, uh, that was horrible. When I found out they were actually going to move it, that's when High Dam was finished in 68. That was so wonderful that to move it. So that at the sol winter, yeah, the solstice, winter solstice and summer solstices, the sunlight still goes straight to the shrine and the statue at the end of it in the new position. They duplicated it so well. So, okay, maybe I was a little weird. And then I started finding books. My parents, any book I wanted, I got, because I was just basically reading, not doing much else. And I came across the Philadelphia Experiment by Morris K. Jessup, the original version of it. I thought, wow, 
this is amazing. This is a ship being teleported in the Second World War from Philadelphia to elsewhere and back. People dying, extreme use of very strange forces we didn't understand. And was it true or was it not? And I don't like mysteries. I've never liked mysteries. I like answers. Even if sometimes we have to adjust our scientific viewpoint, because that's how scientists, science is meant to evolve. Science is not fixed. Science is one hypothesis waiting around to be wiped out by the next hypothesis. So technically, nothing is real. It's all hypothesis defeating prior hypothesis. But that's another series of lectures. And Jessup's book just got my mind thinking. What is there in the rest of it? So I bought a whole, started buying books by Sheru, Colosimo, uh, Harold Wilkins, Desmond Leslie, a whole mixture. Leslie was UFOs and their relationship to demonology, which is an interesting thing, where all the fairyland tales of centuries are the same as the modern UFO encounters today. Only the creatures have changed a little. They change relative to your cultural loading. And that kept having an impact on me. And Wilkins and Cosimo and Sheru and others were writing about the archaeology that no one wanted to talk about, that went against the constant paradigm that this is not accepted archaeology, we're not going to use it. And I thought, no, this is all forming patterns. This is amazing. And so I just kept buying books and reading and writing. And I thought, no, there's something happening here. I'm writing more, reading more and more books on ufology and monsters and Bigfoot and, you know, any mysteries, any phenomena. I had to buy the book, which I did, if I could get hold of it. And we didn't have the internet then. So you can't just buy 8,000 books from Amazon and have them shipped over in two weeks. Thank you, Amazon. I love you. Because without <laughs> Amazon, none of my books would be published. Yeah. I'd still be working one gigantic book at home, wondering what I'll ever do with it. Now, 110 plus. And they sell quite well. People like reading them. I get good comments on them. Sometimes I don't. Oh, well, that's life. Shit happens. And also, you can't be responsible for what some idiots thinking or saying. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, I thought, okay. There's a mystery going on here that I started picking up during everything. All this reading about UFOs and monsters and the Virgin Mary. And, and I tried to talk about it with the other kids at school. And you can imagine this little country school in Australia in the 1950s. Holy mother of God. They just wanted to play footy and wrestle. They didn't want to talk about Egyptian archaeology. They didn't want to talk about dinosaurs. They didn't want to talk about anything interesting. So I was one of those kids you'd see in the back corner of the library. I think that library had 20 books in it, I'm not sure, but I was there. <laughs> and I thought, hang on, something odd here. I'm reading books on this particular area, on this side of this mountain or whatever. These people are seeing the Virgin Mary in blue. Must be a Marian Virgin Mary. She's standing in a tree or a cave. And I thought, okay, yeah, okay. And there seem to be trees or caves every time you see a Marian Virgin Mary. Okay, fine. Then I started noticing 
So I like maps. I like spatial recognition, seeing where things are, what patterns evolve. Hang on, that's that same spot for Virgin Mary, but it's around just a little bit away from it on the other side of the mountain. And it's all these people who have a continuous history for a period. They're seeing Orthon from Venus, the great Venusian with the long blonde hair and his six foot six, and he's come to earth. Comes out, it's almost you could hear angels singing. Maybe he was an angel. They're seeing him here and getting the great message of, I have a prophecy for the world and in 1968, 72, 74, whatever, it will end and blah, that'll be the end of it. Greetings from the Galactic Federation or whatever. But, hmm, that's just a coincidence. I don't like coincidences either. And I'm amassing, amassing more data in my head. Hang, hang on. This is the same area again, just a little bit away from it. This is in North America, and they're seeing Bigfoot. What? Okay, Bigfoot is believed to normally live in North America, though we know that there are large, hairy simians or anthropoid apes living on every continent, as far as we know, apart from Antarctica, and who knows? Who knows what lurks under the ground there? And that's another story. I'm not even going into it at the moment. So I thought, that's just an odd coincidence. Why are the three of them in the same area? No, no, just other clusters, but at different times. But this is odd. This is odd. So I had, well, actually, I found some old printers, block-type boxes. They're just long, flat boxes with long columns to hold block-type for printing. I think I found them on a garbage pile somewhere or at the tip. Because tips are lovely for foraging through, where you could in the old days before they started bulldozing everything. And so I thought, okay, let's do it this way. If a thing comes from somewhere starting with A, I'll put it in the first one, which is A. Then you can guess we ended up with them up to Z, or Z, depending on who's listening. And so I just cut these strips out as I'm reading every book, wrote down the note of what occurred there and the place and the date. And in it went. And that kept me happy for years. And then I started going through them. And I thought, hang on, I got lots of ones for this one. For the same area. Lots of ones for that one. And they just gave me more details for each thing because every writer writes with their own slant, their own definition. And so... You can get three different reports on the same thing and all different. Which is rather amazing, Toxa. I thought this is getting weirder and weirder. So I started writing them all down. And it became a book that I finished in roughly 1994 but kept editing. It's finally published in 2012 as an ebook because it was 1,700 pages. Couldn't be published as a normal. Escape Ways to the Gods. It is available now in four volumes because that's what it took to publish 1,700 pages. But it had latitudes and longitudes and mathematical calculations. You could open any part of it and you would have what the sighting was, where the sighting was, the latitude and longitude of the sighting, the date of the sighting, the time of the sighting. 
anytime you open one single little snippet of information, a hideous thing to edit, because every time you added a new thing, you had to change the number structure of everything. So you could keep up to date with it. I thought, this is getting ridiculous. No computer then, just purely by hand. I had tried using a computer, but it just couldn't quite grasp it. So anyway, I'm looking at these pat this patterns that's forming, and I thought, let's try and put these on paper. Let's try and put these on paper. And the you know, viewers may not have seen anything like this. Let's just see what happens when we convert Earth's surface into a vertical plane. We get scribble like that. Wow. So that the is... Thing is all anomalous phenomena from 1800 to 1977. The large bit here is the United States. It's from 120 to 30. So it's 120, zero, zero. There are always two zeros. But develop that constant because you have to have two zeros, zero east to zero west. And I thought, hang, what's this doing? It's creating sine waves. That's ridiculous. All this data is supposed to be schizophrenia, imagining, imagination, delusion, drunken out delirium tremens, every explanation except for what the hell are these goddamn things doing creating repetitive sine waves through time because this is time. I developed a way of mapping the Earth in time. Wow. Everyone had bothered to do it as a circle. Bugger that for a joke, you couldn't work it out if you tried. The five and six dimensional mathematics are phenomenal. No, we just converted to a flat surface, east-west, straight down. Put the data in, and there we have Wow. Lots of sine waves. So anyway, this did not fill me with joy. It filled me with a hell of a lot of frustration. And I thought, this has to be tested. We have to be scientific. We have to be logical. As I said, there's a scientific and logical reason and explanation for everything, even if we had to modify the explanation. Excuse me for a second, I'm getting dry. So... At the time, it was 1992, I think, I got in touch with a TV show called Beyond 2000, The World of Tomorrow. Ah, great. Uh, they weren't interested. But one of their researchers was. She said, well, we can't really film anything about it. You're not a scientist, so we can't really tell anyone about it. And I met that years later as well with some of my other books. And... They sent me to a Pasteur Prize-winning physicist in Australia. They said, talk about it with him. See what he thinks. And he's a very radical physicist, but a brilliant physicist. And so I met the fellow in Wollongong in 92, went down after I met him almost every night for about six weeks to download data onto his ancient CPM-free computer system. It's probably older than you are. <laughs> that was in 94, and that still had a CPM-free green screen. Wow. It was an advanced computer for its day, but I think my watch is more intelligent now. <laughs> <laughs> and 
He did a whole lot of graphs. He found he worked out how to do certain things with it. What he did was, we did 1800-1977, which is the test period I'd set. Every single phenomenal report that had been multiply independent witnessed or left and or left trace evident phenomena was in it. Nothing like, oh, I saw a light in the sky and I went over. Uh, no. I wanted, here I are and I want to take you away or whoop, whatever. Or oh, it's come out of the bush or a lock <laughs> or wherever with several witnesses or several independent witnesses. Okay, thousands of them. We had this weird graph that kept going up and up and up and up and up and up from 1800 to 1977. So that's when I stopped my database. So I thought, one day I'm going to have to do the database from 1977 onwards to validate this database. Because if it's got the same patterning, it validates this one. But what happened was he reversed all the data, so it became an ex exponentially. So you had smaller bumps, but they were more indicative of what was happening over time. And he thought, you know, one night he's talking to me. This is, this is weird. This data of yours is all supposed to be garbage. It's just dross. This is the first pattern to come out of it. If you can see that at all. Yeah. It's a 515-year period of repetition. Wow. Okay. And this is, where are we? I really should have put these in. And, this, and then we had a Neptune one as well. Where the hell did Neptune go? Oh, Neptune's gone missing. And then there was one that wasn't as long. I think it was a 120, 130-year period. And then we had a Neptune period. We're calling these planetary periods for one thing, and I can't remember what it was running at. 112.5 years was Neptune. And then we have Uranus. And we're over here. I had a bad problem a few years ago. I got the shits before this research and burnt it. And this is all that was left. You burnt it? I burnt it. Oh, wow. And you've been working on something for years and years and years, and you can't get any further with it. Yeah. You just got frustrated. And then... Yeah, we get down to a Saturn cycle, which was only about 75 years. It's all written down in my books. And wow. We got down to a Jupiter cycle of about 60 years. We thought, well, we didn't call them those things at first. He said, we've just got these weird cycles. Then he said, you realise that they're very similar to the periodicities of the planets in our solar system. He said, that's why... This one's similar to Pluto. This one's similar to, to Uranus. This one's similar to Neptune, to Saturn, to Jupiter. Under that, the computer couldn't sort out the, the static. There's too much. And, of course, we're talking 1992. 
So he said, if these are similar to the periodicities of these planets that we know of and the planetoid, what is the 515-year one? We would have to deduce, deduce then that that is another planet or planetoid. So we called it Persephone at 515 astronomical units from the Earth. Who knows, there might be people who call it Nibiru. There's a lot of that going around at the moment. But it's interesting, it just happens to be sitting out there in the Oort cloud at the edge of the solar system, doing its own thing. But once again, why is all this data that is totally erroneous, as we used to call it, forming patterns? And now, forming patterns relative to the periodicities of the major planets. And remember, all a planet or a star is, is a magneto. For those who don't know what a magneto is, I'll give you a simple example. You put copper inside something and you start turning it inside an iron core, uh, inside an iron, no, you put the copper on the outside, an iron sheaf on the inside, and you have a battery or a a power source in constant movement. So let's just thinking we've got these little electromagnetic batteries buzzing all over the place, in some cases very big electromagnetic sources. Are they influencing the observers to see things? Except these things, in my reports, leave footprints, they leave burnt buildings, they leave wrecked cars, they leave damage, they kill people. So, okay, and probe. So, we're getting, what's happening here? What sort of reality is this? And people say, it might be another dimension opening. Such an easy answer. When I get to dimension opening, why didn't we think of that before? Of course, we've thought of that before. But I don't want to know. Yeah, it's a dimension. I want to know why and how. The ins and outs of a cat's bum to use an old phrase. Sorry, I have to keep moving the mouse or we lose the picture. That's no problem. Now, so we've determined that there is a pattern to these damn things. It's related to the periodicities of the major planets of the universe. I call it the, but what do I call it? The Mitrovich effect, the Mitrovich phenomenon. You know, which had various names over the years. It's quite controversial. Because what causes an energy mass to occur that you can't see, you can't feel? That goes to, I'll just quickly go through another little scenario. On Earth, we've got five states of matter. Well, hang on, here we go again. No, no, I learned there are three states of matter, you say. I was at school. I did the level fours. Yes, solids, electrons, and well, they're barely doing anything. They're basically just bloody sitting there. Because, yeah, the little buggers are getting agitated. Gas, oh, they're off. They're racing. They're going everywhere. Plasma. Only discovered since the 70s, basically. It's at the core of a nuclear explosion. Those little buggers are now everywhere. They've reached the point where their electromagnetic bond of their core is disintegrating. The electromagnetic bond is being destroyed. 
And then for quite a few years, I thought maybe we'd go to a quasar vacuum, which was a quantum physics term, where everything vibrates so fast, it goes through a nuclear, it goes through the nuclear explosion, turns into a plasma, and goes into another dimension. So we've got Schrodinger's cat in two parts, there and here, and possibly not here or there either. But it's only recently I've had to reconceptualize it. It's a far simpler thing. The problem with the quasar vacuum is the incredible heat. It would destroy the observer. With no observer, there's no observation. So, something that had been lurking in the back of my mind for many years and years and years since I was a kid, it's a harmonic, it's a harmonic rhythm or vibration. It's the fifth state of matter, where there's actually no matter but a vibration. That these are harmonics, which all sine waves are. Everything in the universe is a harmonic. Yeah. Everything we are is a harmonic. And that's what I've been working on for a few years. Sorting out these harmonics and everything to do with it. Along with writing more books on Bigfoot than anyone else, more books on UFOs than anyone else, lots of books on archaeology, and books on the history of Earth's cataclysmic history. That's an interesting one too. From the beginning of Earth to the present, it's seven hundred pages. It makes a nice doorstop. It's called the winds when the sky crashed down, and and in, a little discovery I made during it: the second oldest meteoric impact on Earth was in three thousand six hundred three two or three anyway three two yeah three three. 3 billion, 260 million years ago at a place called Barberton in South Africa on the Greenbelt. Bang. 60 miles wide. That would change the neighbourhood completely. And I was looking at other things to lighten up this, the tales to, to give them more visual and intellectual stimulus because you don't want to disrupt in 3,260 million BC, a meteorite hit Barberton and left an impact crater of 60 miles next. But no, no, no. It'd be the most mind-numbingly boring book on Earth. Mind you, I did have a person say that about my books, that they spent hours reading them. They were so boring. And I said, why did you read Yeah. They can't have been that boring if you read a whole book. No. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, tell wow. me about it. But you know what was interesting about Barbizon? Now, this is a period there is no life on Earth. There is no oxygen on Earth. There are no aerobic bacteria. There's nothing. And this is the second largest major eruption, a meteoric impact. But I only did impact over a kilometre in size. So they're all big ones. The oldest fossilized anaerobic bacteria, and I've got their name written in the book somewhere, but I can't remember it, were found at Barberton. 
And the amazing thing is they are found from the same date, 3,260 million years ago. Now, the beautiful thing about a comet, I like comets, is they're big mud balls, basically. Mud and ice. The outside makes a lovely shield from electromagnetic radiation and solar radiation. And inside, the temperature is lovely for a bacterium. And it's got moisture as well. What more would a bacterium want? We've seen them around hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. They don't give a rat's ass about 500, 600 degrees Celsius. Yeah, nice day in the sauna, Fred. Yeah, great. We'll turn it up a bit. I wanted to announce this to the world that I'd found pretty well where life first arrived on Earth. None of this, oh, it just happened to appear one day during an electrical storm, which was the accepted theory. Oh, okay. That's a pretty good accepted theory. I'd rather stick to it arrived from elsewhere and landed here. Yeah. The principle of panspermia. So I contacted a prominent ABC television show that deals with science, the Government Broadcasting Network of Australia. And I discussed it with them. They said, it's fascinating, but we can't interview you. I said, why? And they said, you're not an accredited scientist. You haven't had it peer-reviewed. I said, most of the major scientific discoveries were made by non-accredited scientists. Some discoveries were made by a person who worked for the telegram office in Vienna in the early 20th century. Excuse me? No, no, it's the way we do things here. And I basically said, nephew, yeah. and that was it. Wow, man. In the entire time, I get interviewed from England, the States, Canada, Europe, quite often. It's almost a fortnightly, monthly thing. Do you know how many times I've been interviewed by anyone in Australia? How many? I'd like to say none. But two weeks ago, I got interviewed by our residential community TV station. Two weeks ago? Here in our gated community. Yes. We've got our own TV channel. So I finally got interviewed in Australia for five minutes. Wow, man. That's crazy. That's crazy, man. I carry that badge with pride these days. Yeah, it's cool, but it's crazy. I can't understand. I've written, more books. I've written more books than any Australian author and published them and researched them and edited them. Wow. So figure that one out. So why? Could someone say it's why, a conspiracy? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, man. Why Why won't they talk to you? Because your work is incredible. I'm a rat bag. <coughs> I take on subjects no one else wants to touch. I look for patterns and find them, in, excuse me, in events and things that aren't supposed to do it. Yeah. Like I wrote a little book recently called Shishalub is Not Alone. I had to change its name because no one would ever understand what Shishalub was. Shishalub was the meteoric meteor that apparently killed the dinosaurs. I had to change the name to the comets 
and meteorites that killed the dinosaurs. As I said earlier, there were several of them. It wasn't just a one-time event. There were several of them around the same time, creating nuclear winter, tech, winter conditions. I mean, it wasn't one 65-kilometre-wide impact or a 450-wide one near it around the same time. The beauty of geology is you look at geological error factors. That can be up to 500 million years. Excuse me? That's an error factor. So what I did, I did the average of the error factors. And then suddenly you start having things occurring around the same time. So that when you put them on graphs or on maps, I got maps in all of my in all of my books on a, on cosmology and impact. So you can see where they were and how wide they were and their relationship to other areas. It has to be visual. You've got to have, it's a lot of stuff to comprehend, but we can do it visually. And now, just as I've lost myself, which I have, where was I? Okay. Where were we? When you look at things on a map after working out the mean average of the error factors, say 500 million years, you form patterns. And I started finding patterns where meteorite impacts were occurring in lines. They started occurring in what I call teardrops, a big impact, then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and more fragmented. Because what's happened is we had a big one hit here and it's shattered and its bits are falling here as the earth is turning into it. It changes the entire look of things completely. Because using that, we can look at 12,000 years ago around the Younger Dryers, which I've written books on. You know, I've written books on what I call the Great Cataclysm. And Graham Hancock, I love his documentary. It's lovely pickies. It's really nice. And his wife's lovely. She's a Facebook friend of mine. Stated that one comet was responsible for the Younger Dryas impact events and the resultant extinction of the North American woolly mammoth and Siberian mammoths and everybody else. By using maps and using lots of different sources, I found there were whole meteor storms occurring. Literally. Wow. Wow. Bermuda was the central uplift of a 1500k impact crater. The central uplift Every now and again, you'll see an ad for milk. It drops something into the milk and it comes up in slow motion and then goes down again. Imagine that's a meteor hitting the earth and piercing the crust. That solidifies before it comes down. That's a central uplift. Yeah. It's like a baffleif volcanism. It's sort of like, it is a baffleif really, but it's not a volcanic baffleif. It's a meteoric or cometary caused baffle. So, oh, damn it, it's not there. I moved all my books around, so I can't just grab the particular book I was after. But there's this big impact at Bermuda, Bermuda here, 
And then we had smaller ones occurring, and there's a lovely one on Hudson's Bay. If you look at the right side of Hudson's Bay, it's a lovely circle. It was a meteoric impact. We'll come back to that in a second. And then they got smaller and smaller as we went over Alaska. And then by the time we'd, remember, we're on a sphere, by the time we'd hit Russia, there's a whole stream of fragments that form lakes. That's a teardrop. Bang, and then shatter, 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 and around. The interesting part about it, though, is that there's multiple meteoric impact or cometary impact. The one that shattered Hudson Bay, we weren't talking about... People get the idea that the North and South Pole have always been there. They don't go anywhere. They're correct in part. The weather has always been there. But what's underneath it moves. At the time of the Younger Dryers, Hudson Bay was the North Pole. And it was the centre of the North American ice mass. So the ice mass was actually the Arctic ice mass. Because what happened in that period is that, bang, we have the Earth tilting, 26.5 degrees, the North Pole moves, and geomagnetics proves this in the study of the polar positions. It moved from Hudson Bay to Greenland, 26.5 degrees. A shift upwards on the Siberian side, which meant all the mammoths and mastodons and everybody else wandering around that required half a tonne of food per day, not ice or snow, that ate leaves off trees because that's what we found in their bellies, in the frozen mammoths, were snapped frozen as their land surface went bang, straight into Arctic. Wow. Yeah, bird-sized mammoth. Meanwhile, the impact at Hudson Bay is pierced for two-mile-thick ice mass, and it is moving. It's going to cause tidal waves pretty soon that are enormous. It's responsible as it rapidly melts for the 300 to 400 foot sea rise at the same period. There were too many things occurring at the same time. And another facet of it was all around. A shame you can't insert pictures from Google onto here. If people have tried it sometimes, it gets confusing. You have with Hudson Bay as a nucleus in Wyoming, and then on the eastern seaboard, all along the southern states, you have what are called the bays on land. They're elliptical lakes going from roughly north to south based on Hudson Bay from that direction. The beauty of them is the southern lips are high. The northern lips are almost non-existent. Oh, climatologists and geologists state these are caused by the wind. Okay. What if they're caused by fragments of the continental ice mass being hurled so far out they are crashing to the earth? And they're not crashing straight down. Most things don't crash straight down. They crash at an angle. That's why there's nothing found in them, because it was ice. But they've ploughed these lakes because if you look at them 
on Google Earth and you look at them at pictures of a Carolina base, a Georgia base, they even intersect with each other. They overlap going in the same direction. We got a lot of skidding going on in this period. Patterns, patterns of recognition. How are we going? Are you fine now? Yeah, this is cool, man. This is awesome. So that's what happened in the last cataclysm, which nobody talks about. We don't talk about last cataclysm. It's not scientifically verified. Not scientifically verified. All of this stuff is scientifically verified. I've been the industrial hoover that's covered them all up. Yeah. And worked out the patterning because I like patterning. Yeah. I'm not sure whether I've got Asperger's or not, but I like patterning. That's amazing, man. Why do you think mainstream science doesn't want to change its uh, its findings and doesn't want to look into new new options and new new opinions? Protect its ass. You see, I'm a professor at a respected university on Earth. I've got the top job in my department, and I did my papers on the Berean fishbone from the western side of the island and how different it was to the one on the right-hand side of the island. If all of you want to continue in your careers, you will follow what I say. It's called a hegemonic oligarchy. It exists in every bureaucracy you can find, especially academic ones. So what happens is everyone starts bum-sniffing from the bottom down to head up to keep their tenure so they can publish, so they can be there. And you know one of the best examples of it I've ever known? There's a brilliant anthropologist. I'm pretty sure he's dead now. Mr. Leakey, L-E-A-K-E-Y. He excavated Olduvai Gorge for years. He virtually fathered paleontology in Africa. He found Lucy, a pithecaphropine creature. He found other hominids from God knows when, from millions of years ago, in Aldervai Gorge. It's probably the most famous fossil hominid area in the world. He wrote the textbooks on it. And there was said, yay! I think it's Tim. I can't remember. There's so much stuck in here, and it's so hard to retrieve at times. Yeah, the old forgettery. And, okay, he has books. I've got quite a few of his books. I love his books on paleontology. They're easy to read. His sons are brilliant writers. His wife was a brilliant writer and, and archaeologist, paleontologist. He went to North America. He went to Texas and California. He found what he believed to be tiny marsupial fly, uh, tiny bone flakes, eolithic flakes, of little spear points and things like that. And he found other things that looked like mesolithic and eolithic stones carved by man or a hominid related to us. In Africa, great discovery, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. In North America, heresy, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Man came here in 18,000 BC. That was it. Went across the Bering Strait, which was covered with two miles of ice. Managed to survive for months as they headed south and ended up in the southern United States. Um, 
my question usually is like the mammoths is, what did they eat? Sorry, we don't answer that question. It's a simple question. You don't eat, you die. Yeah. So he became an outcast. And coming okay. back, yes, 18,000 is an amazing date. It's shortly before the, the driest period. But it's not very long ago. And somebody's writing about it recently on Facebook, and I put in a little point. God, did it get them going. I said, you've all forgotten, obviously, about the research done at Huey Atlico in Puebla State, south of Mexico City in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, where Paleolithic spear points were found inside mammoths, inside their bones. Uh, by the way, if you stab bone, it has to be fresh or it doesn't go in. So these were live mammoths. Yeah, 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 no worries. And the dating of quarter of a million years ago. I'm sorry, I can't hear any of you. Excuse me? Where are you? And the thing is, it's not the only one. There are lots and lots. I just did a podcast yesterday, a little podcast. I only did them for an hour. I don't charge for them. You can donate if you want to. But I pick a subject, so I did traveling down the east coast of North America, the section, what did I do yesterday? New Jersey to Georgia. The thing is, it's not just a trip of river voyages. From my book, Pre-Columbian River Explorers of North America. And it's full of Romans and Celts and Jews and North Africans and Iberians or Spanish and Portuguese and Basques, and Bristol fishermen, all in North America. Fishing, trading. My Minoans heading off from Crete to North America to get copper. But it's another little story. We'll stick to this one first. And I wish I could remember the theme I was going through again. But you've got all these things happening in North America. This book is based on river voyages along the North American coast. you Go down, little sites on the coast, then we head up. And it took a while to research it because I found that all these rivers and creeks and tributaries, they kept bringing forth Roman coins, Celtic runic writing, strange statues, weird artefacts. And this is only a one-hour one, and that was only a bit from New Jersey to Georgia, wow. which I published yesterday. I've got a full book of them, all in state by state. No, hang on, no. Strange archaeology of North America is in state by state, county by county format. That one, I couldn't do it that way. I so said by river by river format. The trouble when you write so many books, you forget their formats at times. Sometimes <laughs> I forget their names. Because the thing with water is it's easy to travel on. You can carry a lot of freight on a boat or a raft. Can't carry much on a donkey or a camel. Or you need a lot of camels. The seas, the rivers and lakes, especially when during the pluvial period, such as medieval period and the Roman period, every thousand years we have a pluvial period, which means a rainy period. Lots of rain, 
everything's lush and wonderful. And incidentally, why did? I know we jump all over the place, but that's the nature of my interviews. That's cool, man. You've got so why? much knowledge up there. It's unbelievable. <laughs> why did the Vikings call Greenland Greenland when they called Iceland Iceland? We're not really discussing the most imaginative observers. Simple reason being, because in between the 10th to the 13th century, Greenland was green. Because we're in a period of global warming, a thousand year cycle. And people hiss at me when I'm bringing that one up as well. I'm just going for another one now. Greenland was so green, at its capital, which was called Gardar, Tolkien borrowed Greenlandic names for his books. Garda was the capital of Greenland, the Viking country of Greenland. It was big enough to have a stone-built cathedral. You can Google it. The remains of it are still there. Because Greenland was, in, was abandoned about the 14th century. Gone. They could survive in Iceland, but no longer in Greenland. The Cathedral of Garda had 300 cattle buyers or stalls next to it. 300. It's a lot of cattle. Cattle do not live on snow. They need fodder. When it's warm, they can eat grass, but that grass also has to be of enough quantity to provide for the winter. So we're talking about a lush, a lush climb, a lush, wet, cold climb, probably like New Zealand. So here we have a warm period we don't want because it destroys the bloody modern ideology and political manipulation that occurs every thousand years. We've got cows in Greenland. And you know what they were? They were dairy cows. They're good boys, the Vikings. They drank their milk. Yeah. <laughs> dairy cattle need a lot of food. Otherwise, you can't have cattle stalls for 300 of them at Gargo. And it's so handy. Let's just point to, to North America. I think it's 150 miles, which for a Viking ship is a day trip. The entire coast. And so the book of pre-Columbian River Explorers does have them in landing at lots of different places all along the east coast of North America, going through the Great Lakes and into the huge lakes that used to exist in Minnesota and areas like that, because it's so convenient. And it's weird that a thousand years later, those areas are mainly settled by Scandinavian farmers. Yeah, yeah. They almost ended up in their same space again. It's like you look at the Spanish expeditions, they always end up in countries that look like Spain. Yeah, yeah. Look at Mexico. It looks like Spain. don't know what happened with the pommies, or as we call them here, that came to Australia. We don't look like England. <laughs> they tried to make it look like England, but no, it didn't really work. <laughs> so I believe in overviews. The problem with modern society is microcosmic single views and micro views. So they can see and study and analyze the hair on an ant's bum at 200 yards. But they forget that there's something about to step on it. 
Once you get the overview, you realise there's an elephant standing next to it. You start seeing all these different patterns that are rolling into each other. And we come back again to the graph. Yeah, incredible stuff. So that's what I was doing. George, I think you've got to be probably the cleverest person I've ever met. It's amazing, man. Yeah, I'm just a nerd. No, you're not a nerd at all. It's amazing. So, would you? So, the history that we're told that the scientists tell us, or what's in the history books? Do you think that's just all pretty much wrong? Well, look at the, the word itself. His story. His story. Yeah. Gender-specific interpretations of previous events. Yeah. If you want to go back to basics. Because all the winners create the history. All the losers, like the Aztecs and their fabled codices, of which we've got nine. They're, no, the Mayan codices, we have nine. Aztec, we've got a handful. And yet, the Aztec or, Na or Nahua or culture had more advanced cities than the Spaniards when they arrived. They had plumbing, they had floating gardens, they had libraries, they had zoos, they had everything. Okay, they had a religion that was a little different. Like a lot of the Mesoamerican cultures, they believed in human sacrifice, but to them it was their norm. And what killed them was not 64 Spaniards, or 56, depending on who you read, it was 54 or 66 Spaniards and uh, 20,000 opposing Indian groups. It was the viruses that came over from Europe that wiped out almost all of the population. The yeah. same thing happened in Central and South America. The diseases came with them. But to order mythology, 56 people on their horses coming to Mexico City Knock Montezuma off the perch and take over. Unfortunately, they destroyed one of the great cities of the world. But even the Spander Conquistador said it was the most wonderful city they'd ever seen. It was clean, it was big, it was well-drained, it was everything that Spain wasn't. But they wanted the gold and they wanted the power. That's another story. Fascinating stuff, man. Interesting, though. It is. So Dedication of the temp uh, Temple of Hishli-Poshli, I think, only just before the Spaniard, the Casistadors arrived, 15,000 people were sacrificed by having their hearts ripped out and their bodies thrown down the steps. It was part of a continuing 56-year cycle that both they and the Aztecs did. The same period as the perihelion of Venus relative to Earth and the Sun because they believed that every 56 years, Venus would come back and wipe out the Earth. They extinguished every fire in the kingdom and waited overnight to make sure Venus wasn't coming back. Wow. And they really the fires over the bodies. Cycles again. Yeah, yeah. All cycles. Yeah. Everything seems to be connected, everything. But everything is, it's a theory of everything. It's amazing. Yeah, the Mitrovich principle, that's what I'm calling it now. Yeah, that's it. No, it's cool, man. 
Now, they've mentioned it for many years, and then people said, why don't you talk about it? It's pretty amazing. It is. It's absolutely fascinating. So all these encounters that you've got, the 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 alphabet, the all the different encounters that you've got, the, the UFOs, the Bigfoot, um, the spiritual um, encounters that people were having, do you think that they're all connected? They're all part of the same – they're yeah. coming from the same place? See, that leads us to another viewpoint. Okay, let's say we've worked out that we can go through dimensions using the vibrations, the harmonics. They become the fifth state of matter. One of the things that struck me in the beginning was, okay, we have the observers seeing the Virgin Mary in a tree or a cave, in her lovely blue cape, or we see oh, wandering around in the bush or something coming up in the local swamp. Or Orthon from Venus coming down, leaving messages and pissing off again. It was happening too often. I decided, right, let's forget every single sighting, the detail of every single sighting, because it's a variable. The only two constants are time and space. That's why we mapped time and space because he couldn't map sightings as observations. When confronted by something bizarre or the unknown, where these dimensional sine waves intersect or merge or harmonise, really, that's how they do it, and the portal opens, matter becomes in its loosest state, remember, it has been released from its electromagnetic core and then it's suddenly reassembled. Could it be that the observer meeting this free-floating matter creates something from their own cultural loading to be the observation? For a hunter, it's a big fool. If they're scientifically inclined or whatever, it's Orthon from Venus. And if they're religious, it's a Virgin Mary or a relative or a Bodhisattva or a whatever. Interesting. All happening too often that the sighting, the only constant in the sightings was they resemble cultural loadings of the observer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, See, their, it's their perception. It is their creation of reality so they don't go start craving mad. Well, a lot of people do go start craving mad because they can't build a strong enough perception to get out of it or to escape it. But secondly, we're talking about these breaks in the multiverse naturally occurring, just happily doing their thing, vibrating away. What if other cultures further than us, using a linear theory, a time linear theory, say, you know, let's go look at Earth. Where this gap is, there's no time, there's no space. We've already mapped where it goes to and where this one opens. So we don't need huge rocket ships to take 5,000 years to get to anywhere with lots of supplies on it for the crew. We can basically jump into Dad's Wolseley, hot it up and go straight through. <laughs> yeah. Immediately. Which is a funny thing because a lot of the 
a lot of weird encounter sightings with UFOs are one second it's seen there, next second it goes through a billboard or something. And I look at it that way. They're learning drivers. They still haven't quite worked out how what to do when they come out of the other dimension. Vice <laughs> versa. <laughs> 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 but let's say you're a clever interdimensionalist. What's the best disguise you could have to explore a planet? The imagination of the observer. Because you can come out and become a Bigfoot. And all that's going to say is, Clem, you're too drunk. Go back. Get out <laughs> of here. Or you're a religious fanatic. Or look, you're a lot of all nuts. There are no Venusians. Perfect. You can wander around the multiverse at leisure if you know where to go. And this is a roadmap. Yeah. Little squeaky lines that run down. Or is the entire universe created by each individual observer using the same energy? Because, as I said before, in the beginning, my sightings had to be independently witnessed by several independent witnesses at the same time. It's not just one person's delusion in most cases. Or they leave physical evidence traces, such as burnt floors, wounds, inserts, there had to be a degree of validation before I'd even bother putting them in my database. And I'm fussy. Yeah. Well, so you... where do we go? What if? How so interesting, man. We could harvest that energy or harness it. Imagine you're controlling the structure of atoms and subatomic particles. What could you do for healing? To help people with major diseases and things by just restructuring. Because this is the stuff also of religious miracles. It all continues. And it's a lot for people to take in. A lot of your listeners will probably think I'm crazy as a loon, but I'm not. No, nah, not at all, man. Not on this show, you. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe not on your show. It's absolutely awesome. George, have you had any paranormal experiences yourself? I think I have, but. I have vague memories of years ago when I was about seven or eight wandering out of the homestead at the French doors at the back of the house, and the sky was all brilliant red. It was like the frontispieces of old English encyclopedias were all purple and red and swirly and quite beautiful and vague memories of I don't know whether I met a demon or an alien about three foot high, because I was only about three and a half foot high. And from that day on until my mid-30s, I would not go outside in the dark again. Wow. I would even take cabs to go a block. How old was you when, you, when yeah, that happened? I think I was about eight. I just finished reading Hans Holtz's, Hans Holtz's History of Magic. You know, you're reading a lot of stuff. But maybe I just had a dream. But it's a strong dream if it stops me from going outside at night. Yeah. Can you still see yeah, that? Uh, in, in, can you still see what that looked like? It's all too fuzzy. It's just a short, ugly-looking thing about three foot high. And I was about four foot six then, so I was tall, tall, gangly string bean. Uh, we didn't have many fat people in my generation, but it's different then. Too much excess energy. Wow, oh man! So was that was that in your house? Whatever that whatever yeah, that creature was. 
So who knows? I may have been contacted. It could have triggered everything. Yeah. So I'm still here. I'm still researching things no one else has. Well, you, you've got I look, any- I look at discoveries being made these days, mm-hmm. nothing published about 20 years ago. Oh, well. You know, this theory <laughs> of teardrops and uh, latitudinal events and predictive events. And, you know, it's all just one multiverse, but it's all linked together. Yeah. You know, they call it wheels within wheels within wheels. Maybe, what's the name of the person? I saw it was right. They're wheels within wheels within wheels. Was not a craft. The wheels within wheels within wheels. It's a description of how everything works in the multiverse. Not that I believe in that stuff. That's weird shit. Um, <laughs> um, uh, when we was on Andy Decode show together, did you say that you saw a, a pterodactyl-like creature? A couple of times. Oh, wow. I saw a pterodactyl once driving back from Sydney to Wagga at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I thought I saw a pterodactyl hanging from a streetlight near Gundagai. But I wasn't sure. And another time I thought I saw one too. Sometimes things just flicker in the side of your eye. Of course, some schools of magic state that's a realm of where you can see the pixies and fairies and everybody else. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I'm that far into believing those things, but my God, the fairy kingdoms where you go away and come back seven years later, it's been two days here, or vice versa, or two days there and seven years here. Time dilation. Even the Bible mentions a thousand years to God as one, and a, a day to God is a thousand years to man if you go to heaven. Yeah. It's time dilation again, but let's get rid of time. Let's get rid of distance. We don't need it for multiverse. We just go to station you know, two and three quarters, platform two and three quarters, and go <laughs> through it straight through. Just run through it. I did. It's going to be challenging because all great early exploration is dangerous. As poor buggers trying to explore the sea recently, it's always dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Flying jet planes and rockets, it's always dangerous. The Vasco de Gama's fleets to the Indies were dangerous because they're new uncharted territories. But I'd really love to get my... I've had people try and sort out my graphs and do it mathematically and no, it has to be done visually. Because yeah. once you get to trying to do six-dimensional mathematics, you just drive yourself crazy. Man, I've, I've got, I've, I would, would not know where to start. It's incredible, man. Yeah, so anyway, that's a nice taster for everything. And all yeah. my books are on Amazon. Please buy them from Amazon. You'll pay less tax than in your own country. I was looking at prices of my books in Australia yesterday, and I went, holy mother of God, we had a socialist government a few years ago. We got one now again, unfortunately. And it decided to produce all these, raise all these taxes on imported books to protect the 17 socialist members of some lesbian women's collective somewhere who still publish books of their own in Australia. 
and belong to the same clique, the same group. And so all the taxes were raised. I got paperbacks in Australia that retail $110. But what the hell? I'm trying to get this stuff to people. Go to Amazon in the United States, buy it there. Yeah. I will share the links on the show description. People will be able to find your links to get all your books. I'll, I'll add that to the uh, the show description for sure. Yeah, and I was only being generic when I was mentioning <laughs> the authors in Australia, all seven of them. Um, <laughs> they get interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you've not been interviewed in Australia until two weeks oh, no. ago. Yeah the, yeah, the Village TV Network. Well, we, then it we, went off here anyway. I know we've got listeners in Australia, so this this will be in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Strange things happen in the wonderful world of research in this subject. Yeah, man, for sure, for sure. And it's incredible. Your your research is, is amazing. Can I just ask you quickly about the pterodactyl? Because I find that fascinating right. as well. So you saw one hanging from a, a lamppost. I believe I did. Wow. When when but, was this? Can I ask how long ago that time. was? In the 70s. Uh, one moment, please. I don't want to lose you on the screen, vote. It was the same day as the Hilton bombing in Sydney, probably 1975, 76. The Hilton had been bombed in the Sydney. Okay. That was a phenomenal day as well. Uh, pretty bad bombing. And... Uh, I never really worked out who did it. And Sydney was a war zone at the time. So. And for those who don't know, Sydney is the capital of New South Wales in Australia. Yeah. Wow, man. So how big was this creature when you saw it? 1978. Okay. How, how big was the, the pterodactyl that you possibly saw? Four or five feet long, body length. Wow. Wings fall, but it wasn't doing it. I think it was just standard pterodactyl size. Yeah. Or whether I'd had a stressful day of wandering around Sydney, because Sydney at the time, I remember one scene looking down George Street towards the town hall. A lot of the street was blocked. That's a main road in Sydney. And every piece of glass was on the road from the Queen Victoria building and the other side of the road for a block. And all there was was a Sikorsky helicopter. No, it was a Chinook. A big Chinook flying 30 feet above the ground and one of the early bomb robots wandering along the road. It was a disaster. So it could have been stressed from that. Who knows? It's. I just mentioned it to my friend. And I said, I thought I saw a bloody pterodactyl hanging from a tree. And he said, oh, you're probably pissed. Don't worry about it. Because <laughs> I did have a couple of Sherpets that evening. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though, man. Difficult day in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you have, have you had any other paranormal experiences? I can't remember. So much stuff seems so normal to me. I forget. Oh, our old house in Picton that we had to tear down and exercise. Oh, wow. It was an old inn from the 1830s. It had a demolition notice on it when we bought it had to be lived in. If anyone left, 30 days it was to go down. It was a big old colonial thing for a big front veranda on it. And 
Basically, it was hey, standing up out of habit. This is in Picton, 35 miles from Sydney. And we only moved from there last January. And it was weird. One quarter of the house was missing because it burned down in the 70s when the ethnic people tried to renovate it. And then I discovered, hang on, there's a great wall through the middle of it and the door had been bricked up. It was straight. It had been turned into two flats. It was originally an inn. And we had a callway to nowhere that had all these doors that opened out onto an open space where that part of the house was gone. It's called the Great Southern Inn. And one day, I decided, being me, oh, look, it was a doorway there. I'll just knock it out while Parker's at work. So I knocked out the doorway, put in an architrave, got bricks out. She went in there. Oh, this is good. I can now get to the front. It's the other side of the house instead of going out the back, along the back veranda, and back in again the other side. Good. So anyway, she's busy. She tidied up that room, nice big room, lovely farmhouse table we had at the time. You know, it looked like it would have in the 1830s, 1840s. It's very, very nice. And I don't know if she's sitting or standing in there one day, very, very soon after I knocked that door through. And this huge cowed figure came charging through the room from the door I'd opened up, knocked everything off the dining table and headed out through a wall. That wall, we later discovered, was a door that had been sealed up as well. And the interesting wow. thing is, out. the interesting thing is, though, the woman who'd been renting that flat kept seeing things and hearing things and was getting treatment for schizophrenia. She moved out of there and she was fine. Wow. We found out later that we bought the most haunted house in this town. It was regarded as the most haunted town in, in the country, basically. Wow. <laughs> so that's another one. That's a big one. Was impressed by it. No. <laughs> wow. So you, you opened a door to something there. I opened an old door because ghosts travel where they used to travel. Yeah, yeah. That's why you see them going upstairs where there aren't stairs anymore and through doors that have been sealed up. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's so like, do you think that's trapped energy or do you think that's? I think you've been trapped on the wrong side and been trying to get through that door from the time they sealed it. Yeah. That's his routine. He'd go through the door and out. And wow. somebody break the bloody door. I'd be pissed off too. Yeah. But technically, I've been able to go through it, but I'm not a ghost. You know, I'm not sure about the logistics of this. But he came through, he knocked everything off. She had that table looking beautiful, flowers, vases. It's incredible. Did your wife see it? Did she see the... Yeah, she saw it. And that was, was that just, not just like a, a shadow figure? No, it was a black cow figure. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. He looked solid. He was she solid. Was Wow. Oh, I stuff off the table. Yeah, that's incredible. And after, yeah, so, after the door was, was, after the wall was knocked down, did, did anything else happen? Did we have any other shit happening? Oh, that's right. We had our feng shui master come in and exercise the house. Okay. And then eventually we bought, we demolished the house. 
and had the ground exercised and built a copy of the house as it should have looked and did look when it was built in the 1830s. That's cool. Historic building in the area. Yeah. But it was a total wreck. They covered it with asbestos and it was totally eaten out by white ants. Wow. So little things like that. Yeah, some cool experiences, man. Yeah. George, George, this has been absolutely awesome talking to you, sir. An incredible, incredible. I could listen to you talk all night about this stuff, man. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you. Your, I appreciate your, your work is is unbelievable. And credit to you, man. I mean, it's it's, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, I have to talk again. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You're you're welcome on Let's Get Freaky anytime, man. Well, you can invite me anytime. I just try and fit it in with the other talks that aren't from Australia. (laughs) (laughs) George, can you tell the listeners where they can find you and your work? All of my books are available on Amazon, and I'd prefer people to buying directly from Amazon because I get a bigger commission. I like my $3.50. I don't want it to be $1.50 when you buy it from another. And these things take time and money to write. They're available as ebooks, so you can load them on your tablet, read them on the train. They're available as paperbacks. All of my books are available as paperbacks because I like the feel of the book and I like holding it. Most of my books are 300 pages on average. I used to do 700s and thousands, but I find people's attention spans are starting to diminish these days, so I'm reducing them. And at the moment, I'm working on a series of books on Bigfoot in the United States and Canada, uh, state by state, which is interesting. Some don't have many, some have more than you'd ever think. And some of my books recently have also been done as hardbacks. So if you want a hardback version, you see the red books behind me there? That's 22 volumes, as I said, 7,000 pages. I've sold one set of them in hardback already. So somebody's planning a lot of reading and now I'm finding lots of information I want to add to it, but I've only memory God. No, let's do something else. I've written enough. I've finished the Bigfoot book and then I've got to work on my principal. Because all these books are, it's a database of the Mitrovich principle we've been discussing. And overall theory of everything. And of everything, of the cosmos, the multi-dimensions of going through them. Because we've found, or I found, that it's not the quasar vacuum that causes the openings. It's what we saw that was obvious as dogs and balls. And here, it's harmonics. Because they're all harmonics. Sine wave is a harmonic. And so they intercept the big ones down to the littlest one. I mean, I'd love it if I could find people who could analyse my data. They had the skills to discuss it with me, yeah. to really get this thing going. Because this is a whole new frontier for us. Yeah, man, it changes everything. We could travel to the multi- through the multiverse. We could do the most amazing things. Wow. Awesome, man. George, it's been an absolute honour and pleasure having you on the show, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tommy, and thank you, listeners. And bye-bye. And you're welcome back anytime. I'm looking forward to having you on again. Give me a call in a few months. I found that people like a few months gaps between me to digest. 
Other <laughs> interviewers have said that to you as well. <laughs> got one in Canada who says, "I don't <laughs> interview George two or three times a year. You don't want too much of a good thing." <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so much information there. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Sir. My books are also easy to read. They're not written for academics. A lot of them are written as guidebooks. They're American ones on archaeology and that have the the states, have the counties in there. So you can go there and look at it. Or look at where it was before it was wiped out. You know, it's your job to search for data. It's your job to use my guideposts. This is where this happened. Go there, look at it. See what happens if there's anything right. See what happens again. Because if things are repetitive, it's going to happen again. Yeah. George, awesome stuff, man. Thank you so much for sharing your work and and coming on. And uh, let's do this again soon, man. Okay. Give me a call. I'll be on. Unless you listen to say no, not again. But anyway. (laughs) No, they're going to want more. They're going to want more. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Well, that's the show, guys. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please share it where you can. That is a great way to support the show. Make sure you subscribe to Let's Get Freaky wherever you listen to the podcast to be notified when the next episode drops. If you've had a paranormal experience or any crazy experiences that you'd like to share on the show, we would love to hear them. Every paranormal experience is amazing, so I want to hear them all. So get in touch. Email us at letsgetfreakypodcast at outlook.com or you can reach us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter and YouTube at TC Let's Get Freaky Podcast. We'd love to hear from you guys, so please get in touch. We're going to be back very soon for more freaky conversations. In the meantime, check out George's books. They're absolutely awesome. We're going to be back soon. Keep it freaky. Bye for now. Something's in your room. You can't move, you can't speak. It's it's a horrible, horrible feeling. You know, you're looking out into the darkness and then you see a figure, but it's darker than the darkness. I just get this like really creepy feeling and I see this uh, this like shadowy demon looking figure in the front seat of the car. She used to come into my room at night and stand right by my bed and I just was petrified. I remember I saw something fly by my bedroom window. We heard the bathroom door shut. So then we looked out my bedroom window down the hallway and the bathroom door was wide open. So we came around the bend and we saw eye shine. This thing stood up. I mean, it stood up. And it had high pointed ears, it had a snout, it had a long arm, and it just, it grabbed the deer. What?